Father, we have just confessed that you are the one who sits on the throne. And so as we come to a text this morning in which we recognize your sovereignty over your creation and in the affairs of men, we give glory to you and we confess that we we must be humbled before a text like this, a text that warns, a text that also provides us incredible assurance of your great love for those who have trusted in you. So as we look to it this morning, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see wondrous truths in your word. We will need your help for that, Father, so we ask for it this morning. We ask for it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, where in a moment we will begin verse 9. The morning of December 26, 2004, the day after Christmas, started off like just about any other morning. People woke up and they did their normal morning kind of things. Some people went to work, other people enjoyed the holiday. But at 7.59 a.m. local time, this seemingly normal morning was changed when a massive earthquake struck off of the northern tip of Sumatra in Indonesia. It was a nearly unprecedented 9.1 magnitude quake, the largest that was ever recorded in Asia, the largest earthquake of the 21st century, the third largest earthquake that has ever been recorded in the world. The earthquake happened down at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, nearly 31 miles beneath the ocean's surface. And in eight minutes, the quake was over. But the effects of the earthquake were only just beginning. In addition to their normal populations, the beach cities and towns in Thailand, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia were crowded with Americans and Europeans enjoying a tropical escape in a paradise of warm weather. The locals were going to work. Some vacationers were enjoying an early morning stroll on the beach, others enjoying the opportunity to sleep in. Everything was normal until suddenly it wasn't. The sudden vertical displacement of the ocean floor that took place during that massive earthquake deep beneath the surface of the Indian Ocean had created a massive wave known as a tsunami. That wave rose and towered more than 100 feet, and it traveled at approximately 500 miles an hour, meaning that it barreled toward land at the speed of a jet plane traversing the 150 miles to nearest landfall in about 20 minutes. A 100-foot mountain of water traveling with unbelievable speed and power came out of nowhere and made first landfall at about 8.25 a.m. local time. By 8.30, 100,000 men, women, and children were dead. Within a matter of hours, that number would climb to 230,000. Nearly a quarter million people that morning imagined that they were about to have a relatively ordinary day. And within minutes, they were swept away on what had moments before been dry land. A clear and beautiful morning, a 
a normal day disrupted by a devastating and deadly flood of water that came with virtually no warning. It's terrible to contemplate what those moments must have been like. To be strolling out on the beach, to look out at the water and to marvel at this incredibly large wave in the distance, a wave that just doesn't stop growing. Interest giving way to incredulity, incredulity to concern, concern to fear, fear to panic. Or to be one moment sleeping, the next moment to wake and to find everywhere the world is moving around you, your ears filling with the sounds of screams, everywhere around you just crashing, unrelenting water, the sea has come in. This morning we face in our text just such a picture, a day in which people were merry in their hearts, where they were eating, drinking, having a good time, where they were marrying and giving in marriage, doing business, making plans, life as usual until it started to rain. This morning we are back in our Foundations series in the book of Genesis. We've been away from that series for about the last six weeks, so I want to remind you of a few things as we re-engage with that study this morning. We've divided our study through the book of Genesis into five major narrative movements in the book, creation, corruption, judgment, promise, and plan. We've considered thus far creation together, that God created this world and everything that is out of nothing through the power of His Word, that He created us as human beings made in His image, male and female, created us male and female with a purpose, a purpose to fill the earth with worshiping image bearers, worshiping God until the glory of God filled every corner of His creation. Then at the completion of creation, God steps back, He surveys what He has made, and He declares it to be very good. We've considered also together corruption, the curse of sin, the penalty of death that spreads and emanates outward from Adam and Eve there at the tree to their children, to their grandchildren, to their great-grandchildren, to all of the human race who would come after them, inheriting their now corrupted, their now sin-filled nature, depravity. Until finally, as we saw last time that we were together, as we looked at the first eight verses of chapter 6 in Genesis, the earth is filled with wickedness. God created this world to be filled with image bearers. He tells them, go and fill the earth and subdue it. But as God looks at the world in Genesis chapter 6, behold, he sees that the earth is filled not with God-glorifying image bearers. He sees the earth is filled with violence. And so this morning, God, in our text, surveys now this creation, and his assessment is no longer very good. His assessment is enough. Which means that we have now come this morning to the third movement in the book of Genesis, judgment. Judgment in the Bible is the holy wrath of a good, righteous, and just God acting against sin and evil. And as we will find out over the next few weeks as we study this theme together, even in the midst of judgment, God still saves. That, in fact, reveals a major truth that runs throughout all of the biblical 
narrative, not only in Genesis, but through the rest of the Scriptures, our God is a God who, in fact, saves through judgment. As we look together at our text this morning, I'd like to make three observations as we go along. Number one, God sees the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 9 of chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Many religions in the world, both ancient and modern, conceptualize their god or their gods as being relatively disinterested in the world or indifferent on the whole to the affairs of humanity. Perhaps a god that set the universe in motion but then has taken very little interest on what happened afterward. That's deism. Or perhaps there are a god or gods that are only interested in the affairs of humanity in a self-centered kind of way. Gods that treat human beings as their playthings. That's, of course, if there is a god at all. There are plenty of people who deny the existence of a divine being altogether. In any case, given all of these different views, who cares what you do and how you live your life? The gods certainly don't, if there are any. But the Bible presents us with quite a different view of the God who is really there. A God who is neither disinterested nor oblivious to the world that He made. A God who is, in fact, profoundly interested in it. The God of the Bible is a God who sees, and a God who knows, and a God who cares. Notice first with me that God sees Noah. Noah, you will remember, is the tenth generation down from Adam. He's in the line of Seth. And Noah is described at the opening of our passage using three terms. Noah is righteous. Noah is blameless. Noah walks with God. A description of a man who is upright in his character and close. He is intimate in his relationship with the Lord. That's not to say that Noah was perfect. It's not as though Noah is a sinless man. That's not what the text is saying. But he is unique in his righteous conduct. In the middle of unbelievable, pervasive wickedness, Noah is living righteously. He is a godly man in the middle of a profoundly ungodly time. And we shouldn't just rush over that fact. Because it's not just as though Noah is living in a time that is just vaguely hostile to God. He's not just the slightly more religious neighbor on his street who is living around basically moral, decent, upstanding people who just disagree on some issues. That's not the situation in which Noah finds himself. Noah is living in the midst of a people who only think about, who only desire, who only do evil. All evil, all the time, full stop. That's the description in Genesis chapter 6. And Noah walks with God. He's righteous. He's blameless in the middle of this generation, which is, I think, a remarkable testament about Noah. It's a, it's a statement about his faith, about the integrity 
of his character. This is not a man who has compromised himself in order to accommodate himself to the culture and the people around whom he's living. He's not giving in to peer pressure. There's little that is more lonely than standing for truth against a tidal wave of opposition. Little that is more lonely than in being the only one in a crowd who is going the other way. It's hard. Noah is living in a sea of people who practice the darkness, who love the darkness. Not only love the darkness, but correspondingly people who hate the light. Which means that we can be sure that these people hated Noah too. What does Jesus tell his disciples on the sermon on, in the Sermon on the Mount? This world will hate you because they hated me first. Noah is experiencing that reality in his lifetime. He is a God-fearer in the middle of a time in which people hate God. And yet, in the middle of all of this, in the middle of the, this culture which hates God, we find that Noah walks with God. The path of how to make friends and influence people does not start by loving, by loving God in a world that hates him, and yet that is exactly what Noah is doing. And we read that God sees and remembers Noah. But observe second with me that, that God not only sees Noah, but God also sees the rest of mankind. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It's a devastating change, isn't it, from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Now God looks, the earth is no longer good. Now God looks, the earth is not filled with God-glorifying image bearers. It is filled with corruption and violence. God sees this, but God does not turn a blind eye to evil. Evil people try to deny to themselves and to others that God exists, or if he exists, that God cares. They convince themselves that there won't be any consequences. There will be no repercussions for their actions or their rebellion. This is how they convince themselves that they can continue doing what they do and get away with it. Here's how David describes the character of the wicked in Psalm 10, verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. Verse 6, the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all the generations, I will not meet adversity. Verse 11, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. That is what the wicked tell themselves in their heart. But it's deluded folly. God sees every action that we take, whether in public or in private. God sees, he knows the deepest recesses of our hearts. He knows the thoughts and the intentions that pass through our minds. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight, nothing that he does not see, nothing that he does not know. And what is it that God sees in Genesis 6? Wickedness everywhere, pervasive evil. That the beautiful creation is now thoroughly corrupted, and it is corrupted principally by the spoiling influence of corrupted humanity upon it. The one that he had charged to have dominion over creation has subjected the creation not to God's glory, 
but to evil. So know this, friends. God sees the righteous and the unrighteous. So before moving on, I want to just pause for a moment and make two brief applications here. Number one, don't lose heart in doing good because God sees you. It is incredibly challenging to live as a righteous person in an unrighteous time, to stand for truth in a world that promotes lies, to have a completely different value system, a completely different set of beliefs than everyone who is living around you. That is very hard. It can be incredibly lonely, incredibly isolating. Some of you are facing some really challenging situations and decisions at work. We're living in the truth and living out your faith may cost you something, may in fact put your whole career in jeopardy. Some of you have estranged family or former friends who think that your beliefs and your values make you an unloving, uncaring, perhaps even a bigoted person. You've lost relationships with people who you love because you are seeking to follow Christ. Some of you are students, students who are regularly shamed by your peers because you won't do the things that they are willing to do, to say the things that they are willing to say, to watch the things that they are willing to watch, to go to the places where they are willing to go because you are trying to live your life for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, take heart in this. Know that God sees you. And know that God is delighted in faithful obedience, even and especially when it costs us something. And also know that this is one of the great joys of being part of the body of Christ in the church, that we are not truly alone. We are walking this road of faith together. So take heart and press on knowing that God sees you. But the second application is on the flip side of that coin. If you think that you are getting away with hidden sin in your life, know this, God sees you. Don't deceive yourself into imagining that you are really getting away with it. You may be deceiving everyone else around you. You may have all the people in your life fooled, but you aren't deceiving the only one who really matters. On the day in which the final verdict for your eternal future is read and rendered, you aren't going to be standing in front of all the people that you fooled. On the day of judgment, you don't get judged by a jury of your peers. That's not how this is going to work. You won't be giving an account of yourself before people that you have successfully taken in and impressed. You'll be standing before the judge of all of the earth, the one who knows everything that you've ever done, knows the exact number of hairs that are presently on your head or that were once on your head. He knows every thought and desire and intention that has ever passed through your heart. So let us remember this. God sees, God knows, God cares about the righteous and about the unrighteous. Observation number two from our text. When God gives a warning, we do well to listen. So God has seen the rampant wickedness in the world, and he has also seen the unique faithfulness of Noah. And then in what happens next, I want us to see two things 
that God does and one thing that Noah does. First, notice that God gives Noah an unprecedented warning. Verse 12, And God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, to this point, our knowledge of God in the book of Genesis is that of a, of a creator, someone who makes things and then who delights in what he has made. But it turns out that the God who has the power to make things also has the power and the authority to unmake things. And the wickedness and the violence of humanity has now progressed to such a point, to such a degree, that the holy and the just and righteous and good creator cannot continue its, its ongoing existence. Enough. God says here that he will destroy humanity and the earth. But that word destroy is actually the same word for corrupt that has been used in verses 11 and 12. So that if we were to translate that word consistently, verse 12 would actually read, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was destroyed. For all flesh had destroyed their way on the earth. In other words, humanity has already begun the work of destroying the world and themselves through their own evil and sinfulness. In abandoning God, in abandoning the pursuit of goodness, they have already begun the pervasive corrupting influence that results in the destruction of what God has made. As C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The people in Genesis 6 are an awful lot like the people of Romans chapter 1, people who have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, who have rejected all of the revelation of God, who have worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And in consequence, as we read in Romans chapter 1, God gave them up to defiling passions. He gave them over to their own desires. Humanity has begun the work of destruction in the world, but it is God who rises to finish it, and he will finish it in his own way. But notice that the second thing that God gives to Noah is a faith-revealing task. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Now, why do I say that this assignment from God to Noah is a faith-revealing task? Well, I say that in part because 
Noah is absolutely going to have to believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do to ever embark on actually trying to make this massive ship. In order to commit his life to doing this, Noah has to be convinced that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Have you ever been in a situation where you overhear a parenting scenario that goes something like this? Son, you'd better knock that off right now and get over here before I'm done counting to three. Three, two, one. The kid just keeps messing around. Son, I know that you must not have heard me that time because you really are not going to like it if I count down from five. You'd better be over here when I'm done. Five, four, kid just keeps messing around. Son, you have the next 10 seconds to decide this day whom you will serve. And let me tell you, if I get to one, you are going to be in a world of hurt. Ten, nine, kid keeps messing around. Why? We see it all the time. Why? Because the kid knows from long experience that there is never going to be a consequence. It's bluff. It's bluster. It's empty threats. Empty warnings. The child knows this. And so they don't modify their behavior in any way. For Noah to do what he will need to do, Noah needs to believe without question that God is going to follow through on what he says he's going to do. This isn't an idle threat. This isn't a scare tactic. This isn't hyperbole. Noah cannot believe any of those things. Noah has to believe that God is serious when he says that he is going to destroy everyone and everything, that there will be no place of escape, and that the only way that he can possibly be saved is by building that boat and being in it when the time comes. That's the only way. There is salvation nowhere else. But Noah must not only believe that God will keep his plan to destroy the world, Noah also has to trust that God is going to be faithful to his word to deliver him and his family. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, this is actually the first time in the Bible that the word covenant is used. But that is an incredibly important word in the biblical narrative. It will appear more than 24 times throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, 284 times in the rest of the Old Testament, and many, many more times in the New Testament. This is a a central word in the Scriptures. Covenants, God's covenants with humanity, are the ways in which the biblical redemptive story moves forward in the Bible. So what is a covenant? A covenant is a promise or an oath-bound agreement between two parties. We're going to see some very important covenants coming up in the next few chapters of the book of Genesis. But notice that here, God is not actually establishing his covenant with Noah. He's promising to establish it at some future date. I will establish my covenant with you, but not yet. But in order for that to happen, for God to establish a covenant with Noah in the future, he has to first deliver Noah and his family from the flood that's coming. If God wipes out Noah and his family, there is no point in discussing a future covenant. Noah's not going to be around to realize it. But not only does Noah have to believe that God will do what he says he will do, but the task that God is giving to Noah is a massive one that exposes faith or unbelief. Folks with Answers in Genesis have done an excellent job of creating an architectural rendering of the ark given the dimensions that we are given here in this text. Many of you may have been down to the ark encounter. It's a fascinating experience. But we're going to put up 
a picture of the ark that they've built on the screen so that we can just get a, a picture in our mind of the kind of carpentry project that God is giving to Noah here. But to just put this in a little bit of context in our minds, if we can, about the scope of what this in reality looks like, the ark was approximately the length of one and a half football fields. To put that in perspective, you could place three NASA space shuttles, nose to tail, three of them on the top of the ark, the upper deck of the ark. The ark had the internal storage capacity of about 450 full-sized semi-trailers. To build this ark required approximately 3.1 million board feet of lumber. So laid end-to-end, the lumber would stretch 587 miles. That's from here to Nashville, Tennessee. You'd drive eight hours to drive down the length of lumber if it was laid end-to-end that was used in the building of this boat. There are no power tools. There's no drills. There are no power saws, no nail guns, no automatic forklifts. None of that is available to Noah. And surely the community around Noah is thoroughly convinced that he is a crazy person. He is a wild conspiracy doomsday prepper kind of person in their mind. That's who they think this guy is. This is the guy you do not want as your next door neighbor. You move into a nice quiet neighborhood and suddenly there is a decades-long construction process happening next door. The community is not pitching in to help in any way, shape, or form unless they are handsomely paid to help. And while we're on the subject of payment, think about the resources that would have had to go into a project like this. This isn't just simply felling the trees in your backyard. This is getting resources on a massive scale. There's a huge amount of organization that would have had to have gone into this. This is, in other words, for a long time, a life-consuming task. Certainly decades of manual labor went into this for Noah and his sons. Think about Noah and his sons with their neighbors. Hey, Japheth, you want to come catch the game with us this weekend? No, sorry, fellas, can't today. Got to help dad with the ark. He says the rain's coming. Fast forward maybe 50 years. Hey, Shem, you and the wife want to come over? We're having a big party this weekend. Everyone's going to be there. Uh, Sorry, not this weekend. We're working on the boat. Rain's still coming. They hated you already because of your righteous life, because your righteous life condemned their wicked way of living. They hated you to start with. And now they think that you're a crackpot, a freak, a total nut job. For decades, building the world's biggest boat because you say some rain may be coming. That is all the kind of thing that you do only if you are absolutely certain that it is necessary. Only if you absolutely believe the person who has told you, you need to do this. So God gives Noah both an unprecedented warning and a faith-revealing task. Question is, what does Noah do? Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Notice that we aren't given a speech from Noah. We don't read of any questions that he asks. We don't read of any profound theological statements that Noah makes. In fact, Noah is conspicuously silent in all of this. We get no words from him. But Noah's faith speaks volumes here. It speaks through his actions and his obedience. How do we know that Noah believed God? How do we know that Noah, as it says in Hebrews 11, is a man of great faith, one of the greatest men of faith in the history of redemption? How do we know this? Because he does all that God commands. 
And not just, by the way, in the building of the ark. But as chapter 7 opens, the ark has now been completed. And God tells Noah that it's time. Get your family together. Go into the ark. And take with you seven pairs of clean animals and a pair of every other kind of animal. Because in seven days, the flood's coming. It's time. Get in. And we read this in chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Farmers Insurance Agency has been in business since 1928, almost 94 years now. We've all heard their slogan, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two, which is something that you're able to say when you've been in business for 94 years. You've seen a thing or two. When God tells Noah it's time, get into the ark, Noah is 600 years old. He's seen a thing or two. If you were just to think back of six years in our immediate history, that means that you would have had the opportunity to sail to find the new world with Christopher Columbus, and then to go back to Europe to experience the Reformation, and then the American Revolution, and then the dawn of electricity, and then the Civil War, and then the birth of aviation, and then World War I, World War II. That's the scope of time that we're talking about here. Six hundred years old, 600 rotations around the sun, 219,000 sunrises and sunsets. In the 600 years of life and all that he has seen, there is nothing that he has ever experienced that corresponds to what God is telling him is going to happen in seven days. Nothing that would lead Noah to believe it is even remotely possible that something like this could even happen. It defies all of the natural laws as he understands them in his time. But when God tells Noah, get in the ark at 600 years old, Noah believes and Noah obeys. Let's pause just briefly on that to note an application for us. Real faith is demonstrated in active obedience to God's commands. There are many, many people today who claim to be Christians. And yet many, many of those people who profess to be Christians are living without any thought of what active obedience to the commands of God should really look like in their lives. There is no such thing as an inactive faith. There's no dormancy status for faith. A healthy fruit tree produces fruit. And a living, healthy faith produces the fruit of works of active obedience to the commands of God. How do we know that Noah had faith? We know that Noah had faith because he did all that God commanded. His obedience, his acts did not precede his faith. They flowed out of his faith. So let's apply that diagnostic test to our own lives. Is our faith revealed in lives of active obedience to God's commands? Does that describe and characterize us? Do we have an active, living, fruitful faith? Or are the words of our mouths, the things that we say, and the actions of our lives, the things that we desire and do, are those two things telling completely different stories? Real faith is active in obedience. Counterfeit faith is not. When God warns, we do well to listen. Why? Because of the final observation in our text this morning. God does what he says he will do. 
Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and all of the windows of heaven were opened. Noah and his family and all of the animals at this point have entered into the ark. We jump down to verse 16. And those that had entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I want to stop there for just a second to note that it's interesting here that halfway through a single verse, Moses, in recording this incident, refers to God in two different ways. He says first that Noah went in as God commanded him, and then in just a few words later, and the Lord shut him in. Why does Moses use two different names for God here? You'll notice in your Bibles that the Lord is in all caps. Because the, mo- the, the word that Moses switches to here, he's been using the word Elohim for God, but he switches when the Lord closes the door to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The act of shutting the door of the ark is an act of salvation and deliverance and judgment on the part of the covenant-making God who keeps his promises and determines whom he will give covenant blessings to and to whom he will give covenant curses. So for this act of covenant faithfulness, Moses uses the covenant name of God. It is Yahweh who closes the door. He's keeping his promise, by the way, not only to Noah, but the promise that he made all the way back in the garden to preserve a seed of the woman in order to eventually raise one who would be able to defeat their enemy, the serpent. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, in these next few verses, notice how many times Moses emphasizes the complete devastation and destruction of all life that occurs. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God's patience with those who practice evil will not last forever. One day, a day that doubtless seemed like it would be any other normal day, the rain finally began to fall. And then to fall and to fall and to fall. And then the fountains of the deep erupted, and the Creator undid His creation. Notice the terms that Moses uses here. Ground, dry land, man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven, breath of life. Words that all echo back from Genesis 1 and 2. Where God separated the land from the waters where he brought order out of chaos, gave life to all of his creatures. But now God rises in judgment and in wrath, and he brings with him chaos and confusion. In creation, God took what was formless and void, tohu vavohu, and and he established from it order and beauty. And now God reverts his creation to tohu vavohu, and he reverts it in judgment for its wrath and its rebellion. 
The earth that was originally created to teem with life and to be filled with image bearers now becomes instead a watery graveyard. Every living thing of land and sky that was not on that ark died. Every man, every woman, every child. There was no escape for them once the door of the ark was closed, once the hand of Yahweh had determined who was in and who was without. You can just imagine as the waters began to rise and people began to realize what was in fact happening, running to the ark for deliverance, but it was too late. The door was shut. There was no deliverance there. Neither was there any place for them to be able to outrun the waters. The text is clear. There was no mountain peak that was high enough to offer safety or refuge for them. It was a sudden, cataclysmic, global destruction unlike anything that had ever been seen before or has been seen since. The strongest tsunami or the fiercest hurricane like a baby splashing around in a bathtub in comparison to what God did in the flood. And in this, God reveals that it is He alone who rescues the righteous, that it is He alone who judges the guilty, and that it is He alone who always keeps His promises. So as we close this morning, I'd like to leave by thinking of two final applications from what we've seen in this text. Number one, we have too trivial a view of evil and too domesticated a view of God. Many people have used examples like the flood to suggest that the God of the Bible is an angry, vengeful, malicious kind of God. Others have argued that the flood can only be a myth. It's, it's fable and story because the God of the Bible is just too loving to ever do such a thing. It can't possibly be like it's recorded here. If we're being honest with ourselves, we may even feel a little bit uneasy when we read a text like this, that it was a pretty gruesome thing to do to wipe out so many people like that. But in that, we reveal that we have an insufficient understanding of the seriousness and horror of evil, and we have too domesticated a view of the holy God with whom we have to deal. We forget that before the flood, God saw that the earth was filled with violence, that every thought of every man, every woman, and child was only evil all the time, that man was already destroying the earth and in the process destroying one another, but in a far worse way, destruction that only led to more destruction, not destruction that could cleanse, not destruction that could start anew. So the question that we should be asking is what kind of God could look upon that creation and choose to ignore that kind of evil? The flood was an act of justice and mercy and grace and love rather than an act of spite and malevolence and brutality. And if this surprises our understanding of God, it is only because evangelicals today have embraced a watered-down vision of who God really is. A God whose only attributes are love and understanding and patience and infinite tolerance. A tame God. But that is not the holy God who is really there. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy is concerned to discover that this Lord Aslan that everyone is talking about, she's concerned to discover that this Aslan is in fact a lion. She asks, but is he safe? Safe? 
said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The God who brought the flood is hardly to be called safe. And yet, he can be called a refuge. He can be called a rock for those who love him. He is holy, and he is profoundly good. He is the good, and he's king. We have too trivial a view of evil and too domesticated a view of God. Final thought of application. When God judges the world again, it will be just as surprising as the first time. In a sense, the flood should not have been a surprise at all. Your next-door neighbor has been building this massive boat for the last few decades, talking all the time about this coming flood. He's been saying to anyone who listened, the rain's coming, get ready. So when it starts raining, this isn't exactly coming out of nowhere. There's been plenty of warning, in a sense. And yet, in quite another sense, it was business as usual. It was just another day for people living without a care in the world. You see, the flood is in itself an enduring warning to people who are living without a care. God has judged the world once, and He has promised that He is going to do it again. Not in the same way as He did it the first time. In fact, this next time will be a far greater destruction. But it is just as certain as before. And it will catch the unbelieving with just as much surprise as the first flood did. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, our God is good, and He is holy. And what He says, He will do. He proved it in the flood, and He will prove it again. But for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ this morning, the good news is this. The door of deliverance is still this moment open. In fact, Jesus says this, I am the door. But there comes a day when the door is shut, when God says, enough. And that door will be shut by the hand of God to keep those within safe from the judgment that's coming and to keep those without from getting in. So if you have not come to the door, if you have not come to Christ, friend, I plead with you, do not delay. It was all business as usual until it started to rain. Let's pray. Father, we have been instructed now from your word that you are God who sees the righteous and the unrighteous, that you are God who warns of what you intend to do, and a God who always keeps his promises. And so, Father, I pray for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that we would rest in the knowledge that you, that you see and that you know, that evil will not go unpunished, that those who pursue righteousness and that live 
for you will one day be vindicated. That your promises to save and deliver, you will absolutely keep. And Father, for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, oh, may your Holy Spirit do a warning work in their hearts this morning. That they would not allow their hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That they would not go from this place until they have made themselves, submitted their hearts to the one who says, I am the door. Father, may we be warned and encouraged from your word this morning. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.